And if you have your Bibles, you can flip over to the book of Revelation. Ooh, right? So that's the very last book of the Bible. If you're opening your Bible, go all the way to the back, and we're going to be starting in Revelation 1 this morning. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, you can always follow along on the screen up here. Uh, And then we've got Bibles in the back as well. So if you don't have a Bible and you would like one, you can always grab one back there. So take it away, Savannah. Great. This is the word of the Lord, Revelation 1, 4 through 11, and... 1115. Great. Okay. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord, and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for your word. Lord, we ask that you'd be speaking to us through it this morning and trust, even God, that, that, um, that that's what you desire to do. So I ask that you would meet us, that you would speak to us, God, and that you would, uh, that you would change us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this, this fall, all throughout the fall, we are going to be unpacking the book of Revelation. And whether or not you have read the book of Revelation, uh, you have been influenced by the book of Revelation in some way. It's touched you in some way because this book has had a profound cultural impact. Like, think about just the genre of, of, of entertainment uh, post-apocalyptic, right? Built into that is, is uh, the story of Revelation, that there's going to be this end to the world that's dramatic and that's terrifying, and that there will be people who have to figure out how do we live on earth after that. But baked into that is, is some of what we see here in this book called Revelation. It's embedded in our, uh, in our secular, in our political debates about current issues. You think about things like the climate apocalypse, right, or nuclear arms control. We're talking about how do we stave off the end of the world. The ideas of Revelation have soaked deeply in, into our culture. And yet, those ideas have, in a lot of ways, uh, become distorted. 
misunderstood. And that's true outside of the church, and that's true within the church, isn't it? I remember this was, this was uh, maybe more than a year ago at some point, but I, I held up this flyer in service that I received in the mail that was nice and glossy and had an American flag and an eagle on it. And it was all about revelation. It was a church saying, you got to beware, look out. Maybe you grew up in the church like me. Oh, I just got a little bit louder. Grew up in the church like me. Uh, do you remember the Left Behind books? I remember eagerly awaiting at Costco, the newest one coming out, okay? It's very engrossing uh, reading. But we can leave uh, some, of those, some of those discussions with, with the idea that Revelation is a kind of puzzle that we're trying to decode, right? And, and that idea that Revelation is a puzzle that if we could only kind of parse it apart, then it would finally make sense and be relevant for our lives. That's a misunderstanding of the book, So here's what we're going to do this morning, is this morning here, as, as we get started, what we're going to essentially do uh, is install the safety bar of the roller coaster that is Revelation, okay? Because Revelation is a roller coaster. There's like the click, 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 what's going to happen, right? And then, whoop, and you're wondering, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? There are twists and turns and drops and loops. It's, it's incredibly thrilling, and if you're not properly restrained, you're going to fly out of it and land in some weird theological ditches, okay? So what we're doing this morning is we're installing the safety bars on the roller coaster as we, as we engage in this adventure of reading through, of preaching through Revelation this fall. So some of the stuff that we talk about uh, this morning, it may seem kind of academic, which you know I love, okay? But it is also for our hearts, and that'll, that'll become clear as we unpack it, that what we're reading this morning, the, the, the safety bars that we're installing are also for our hearts. And we're going to answer kind of three key questions about Revelation. Okay, what is it? Who is it to? And what is it about? That's what we're talking about this morning. What is the book of Revelation? Who is it to? And what is it about? And we will be answering all of those questions from our text. All of the answers to those questions are going to come from our text this morning. So first, what is the book of Revelation? Okay, well, the first thing that we have to acknowledge is that Revelation uh, is a book with a message that we desperately need. That Revelation has a message in it that we desperately need. There's this guy, Jake Medor, and he was quoted in an article in The Atlantic that came out just this month. And, and he's kind of walking through, he's pulling apart of this book called The Great Dechurching. And it kind of dives into why is it that in the last several years we've had 40 million people leave the church here in the U.S.? And there are all kinds of reasons for that. And the reasons that we often assume are the corruption and the moral failing of the church, people who don't believe this anymore. But what these sociologists uncover is that the, the, the biggest reason that people uh, are not a part of this organization is this institution, as some think about it, right, uh, is because of the structure of their lives. That in essence, uh, we're too busy. The book suggests that the defining problem, this is what Jake says in this article, the book suggests the defining problem driving most people who leave is how American life works in the 21st century. Contemporary America simply isn't set up to promote mutuality, care, or common concern. 
Rather, it's designed to maximize individual accomplishment as defined by professional and financial success. He's saying that's how our lives, how our system of life is set up. To maximize individual accomplishment as defined by professional and financial success. Such a system leaves precious little time or energy for forms of community that don't contribute to one's own professional life or, as one ages, the professional prospects of one's children. He goes on to say, the underlying challenge for many is that their lives are stretched like a rubber band and are about to snap. Do any of you relate to that? Your life feels pulled tight like it's about to snap? Yeah. That defines the way that so many of us experience our lives, right? And that our, our faith, our walk with God, however you want to put it, becomes one of many competing priorities in our lives. That it's one of many competing values in our lives. And so what we are always trying to figure out, what we're often trying to figure out is, how does this priority of God fit in, in and amongst all of my other priorities? Did you guys connect with that? Are you guys with me? This, we had a lot of energy in the beginning, but let me know. Okay, you're still with me. Because that way of living, it isn't working for us. Jake goes on to say in this article, the problem in front of us is not that we have a healthy, sustainable society that doesn't have room for church. The problem is that many Americans have adopted a way of life that has left us lonely, anxious, and uncertain of how to live in community with other people. That this way of life that we've adopted where God is one of many competing priorities and values in our lives, it's not working for us. And what the book of Revelation does is it comes in and it says, wake up. Wake up. It says, no, our stories, the way that we understand who we are as people, God doesn't just fit into that. No, that God is the central defining reality of all of history. And rather than us asking, how do I get a little bit more of God into my story, that we have been swept up into this cosmic story that covers all of space and time. But that's the story that we are being invited into and brought into. And Revelation is drawing us into that story. And what John knew, what God knew when he gave John this vision to give to us is that simply laying out propositional arguments for why you should change the structure of your life isn't going to get us very far. Because if it could, we wouldn't be living the way we are. That we need something that's going to get past our defenses. And that's what the imagery of Revelation does. It knocks us off balance and, and it sneaks in. It makes us wonder, what next? What more? We lean in. We're curious about it. We're confused by it. And in that curiosity and confusion, God is bringing truth into our stories that is reshaping the way that we live in the world. Revelation, what is it? It's a book with a message that we desperately need. And as we, as we come to it and ask, what is this message? We've got to understand the way that God uh, gave it to John, the way that it was first read by the people who received it. When we talk about that, what we're talking about is genre, right? And you guys are very familiar with genre, whether you know it or not. Like when you hear a story start with once upon a time, what is the genre of that story? It's a fairy tale. And at the end of hearing the fairy tale, chances are you are not going to ask the question, well, tell me, when exactly did Cinderella live? What historical era, right? 
No, that would be an inappropriate question given the genre of the story. Or let's say you're watching a show on Netflix and there's a person being interviewed against a black background and there's some ominous music playing. Then there's these little white letters that appear on the side that tell you their name and their occupation. And then there are some pictures and the camera kind of like zooms out on the picture, right? What are we watching? A documentary! And the fact that it's a documentary is going to shape the way that we see it. We're going to expect certain things, like we're going to expect a very clear villain. We're going to expect deception and lies. And we're going to expect the righteous truth warrior. warrior. And, and as we have learned with Netflix documentaries, is that we should also expect that that, real, that that version of truth has been somewhat flattened to fit into a three-part series, right? So we take it in with a certain amount of skepticism, knowing the genre teaches us how to read it. That's true with the book of Revelation. We've got to ask, what genre is it? Because it's weird. And what the book, it's, the book itself tells us what genre it is. It says that it's prophetic. Now, what, what we think often when we hear prophetic is like it's a, it's a fortune teller. Okay, that's not the way the Bible understood prophecy per se. It's, a, it's an incisive view about the present that guides us into the future. And sometimes that includes a descriptions of what will happen in the future, but that's not its primary purpose, okay? But we'll get into that next week. So there's the prophetic, then there's the apocalyptic. It's an apocalypse. It's also a letter. So that prophetic angle, the apocalyptic angle, we're going to dive into those genres next week. But this week, what we're going to focus in on is that the book of Revelation is a letter. And we see that in our text. The first verse that Savannah read for us this morning. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Guys, I keep stepping on this Bible down here. That's not good. Okay. Uh, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. It's a letter with a to and a from. A letter like a lot of the other letters in the New Testament. Actually, the longest letter in the New Testament. And the fact that it's a letter shapes our expectations for how to read it. Because what we know about a letter is that letters are written to specific people in a specific time for a specific person and for a specific purpose. Like, for example, let's say you were to receive a letter at your house from the IRS. Oh, I saw a lot of eyebrows go up. Yeah, it's terrifying, right? And let's say that letter told you that you owed $17,000 to the IRS. (laughs) Like, your heart's going to stop. But then you see that the letter actually was addressed to someone else. Oh. Are you going to write the IRS a $17,000 check after learning the letter was addressed to someone else? No. Right? Because it's not to you. It was to a specific person about a specific issue that has nothing to do with you. That's how letters operate. And yet, there are ways in which even, kind of, even in our broader world, there are letters that are written to be read by, uh, by other people. Right? Like, imagine... Uh, like an advice columnist. I think those still exist. They probably receive most of their questions via email, but they're, they're around, right? Uh, like dear, what are they, like dear Heloise or something? Right, and, and, the, and, the, and you'll see the column, the way it's printed is that there will, there will be an initial letter. Dear Heloise, I'm dating this guy and he's stealing my money, but I love him. <laughs> what should I do? Confused. And then Halloway's writes back, Dear Confused, your boyfriend is a jerk. Report him to the police and break up with him. 
Love Heloise. Okay, so like that's, that's the format of the letter. But the reason that those letters are published, are made public, is in part because we have a voyeuristic desire to look into other people's problems, but also because, right, there's this assumption that if your context matches the context of the person who wrote the initial letter, the advice that Heloise gave may be relevant to your life. Are you with me? So if the context of the original letter connects with your context, then her answer is going to be relevant to your life. That's somewhat of what we're talking about with the book of Revelation, that it was a letter written to a specific people at a specific time with a specific purpose, yet with the knowledge that with John, the person who wrote the letter, had the knowledge that it could be read by other people when their contexts lined up. What you got to know about this letter, though, is that it is not an advice column. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And what John is doing here is he's calling on all of this Old Testament imagery because when a trumpet would be blown in the Old Testament, it assembled God's people to hear God's authoritative communication about their lives. This letter is God's authoritative communication about the lives of the people who receive the letter. And when it touches our lives, it's authoritative communication about our, about our lives. So that's what Revelation is. But we got to ask, who is it to? Because if we go back to our, our example for a moment, if you read Heloise's response letter without reading the initial letter, right, you might go to your boyfriend and say, we need to break up. You're a jerk, and I reported you to the police. He would say, why? Why have you done that? I thought we loved each other. I, you know what? But I read a letter. No, you got to know what the original letter is. you got to know the context it's being written into to understand where and how does it apply to your life. So John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. It's a letter from John to seven churches. Can we get the slide up behind me? Uh, it's coming up here. It'll be up here in just a minute. You see it in verse 11 again. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Can we get the map? There's a map. There's a big map. There we go. Okay, it's a big map. So, uh, you'll see over here in red, the, this kind of situates us with where these churches are. They're in what would, would then have been known as the Roman province of Asia that we now know as Turkey. Okay? So, that's where these letters are written. So, we, let's go to the next slide. So, here's like a zoomed-in picture of those seven churches. Next slide. John is on this island called Patmos. Okay? So John, the person, the author who wrote this book, likely there because he's been persecuted or he has uh, refused to drop some incense on an altar and call Caesar Lord, the emperor Domitian. John has said, there's only one person in my life I call Lord and that is the risen Jesus Christ. And because of that, he, because of refusing to honor Caesar as Lord, John has been exiled to the island of Patmos. And he's written this letter to these seven churches. And the letter that he's written, it's supposed to travel, it's a circular letter. It was meant to first be delivered to Ephesus, yes, and then a messenger would carry it to all of these other churches. Well, that's, the, that's the audience to which uh, it was intended. Okay. So what do we need to know about these churches? You can take off the slide. Uh, 
John tells us a little bit about each of them in chapters two through three, the seven letters to the churches. But what you've got to know is that those letters are only introductions. What John is doing is he's anticipating how people are going to read this letter. He's framing for different churches. This is what I know about what is going on in your church. And from that position, from what is happening in your church, I want you to read the rest of the letter. So really, it's one very long letter with seven little introductions in the beginning. And those little introductions, they tell us about what was happening in those churches. They tell us about the who. What we got to know about these churches is that they were full of people who were eagerly awaiting Christ's return. They were full of people who were eagerly awaiting Christ's return because Jesus told them to eagerly expect his return. He said, I'm coming again, but I'm going to come like a thief in the night. You're not going to expect it, so be ready, be ready, be ready, be ready. And so the people in these churches are eagerly awaiting his coming. And yet, what they're finding is that his coming is taking longer than they thought it was going to take. And in their waiting, they experience what we experience in all of our waiting, which is pain. That waiting is really hard. And they were experiencing that. And these introductions to each of these, inter- these seven introductions to the overall letter of Revelation, they, they draw that pain out for us and they show us different ways that people react to the pain in their lives. For example, John writes to the church in Ephesus and he says, hey, your hearts have grown cold. You're doing all the right things. You're checking all the boxes. You believe all the right things. But your love for me, your love for Jesus, it's grown cold. Because that can happen in our waiting, can't it? That we're doing all the right things, but we forget why we're waiting in the first place. There are also people who, because of their waiting for Jesus, are experiencing more pain in their lives. Because of their choice to identify with Jesus, they're experiencing greater pain, like John, who was exiled. There are other people who are refusing to call Jesus Lord and because they are waiting for Jesus to return, because they're bent on calling him Lord as they wait, there is persecution, there's pain coming into their lives. But that happens to us as we wait. We also read that there are people who have made compromises with the world around them because the waiting and the pain of the waiting is so hard. That rather experiencing the pain that their friends are experiencing in other churches because of the persecution, they made compromises with what they believe, uh, with who they say Jesus is, and those, those compromises are always related to how we live. But the compromises that we make about who Jesus is always play out in our lives, in the choices that we make and the ways that we live. And the way that we like to tell it to ourselves is that it's our high-minded choices that influence the way that we live, but often it goes the other way, doesn't it? That we've chosen to live a certain way and so to justify that, we've got to change what we believe about God. That's what's happening in these churches as they wait. There are all kinds of different ways that they're wrestling with the pain that has come into their lives due to the waiting. That's it. It's a book written to a specific people at a specific time for a specific purpose. But does that purpose sound at all, does that context sound at all related to the, to the context that you find yourself in on a day-to-day basis? Yeah. 
And John knew that when he was writing this book, that he was writing this book to a specific group of people, but he was writing it for the church at all times. That what he expected is that this book would be delivered in a circle, but what he knew is that then it would be passed on to other churches. That's part of why there are seven churches chosen. Because all these numbers in Revelation, they mean something specific. That this number seven has to do with this idea of fullness. That it's being written to the, the whole church. Across space and time, yes, it was a message to specific people, but it was also written for us. Written to us, a people who were living in the last days. And there have been people across the history of the church who have thought they were living in the last days. You can think about uh, Augustine, this great like thinker saint in the church, right? That as he he's a he's a bishop in a city called uh, Hippo in North Africa, and while Augustine is literally on his deathbed, as he is dying, barbarians are sacking the city. It's burning around him because the Roman Empire is in total and utter collapse. And for people who had lived their lives within the safety and security of this system and they're seeing it collapse, it felt like the world is ending. We are in the last days. And then you fast forward just a few centuries. Think about the 14th century when the Black Death is sweeping across Europe and over a fifth of the population drops dead. Think about all of the implications of that for society. It's going to feel like everything is coming unraveled and people said, we are living in the last days. And here's the thing, is they were. Augustine was. The other people in the 14th century, they were, and we are too, because we are in this time in between Jesus' first and second coming, all of which Jesus has called the last days. And we're in that time, we as a people waiting and experiencing the pain of that waiting. This letter, it's for us. It was to someone else, but it is written for us. That's what it is. That's who it's to. Let's talk about what it's about. So I'm going to read you from this book. It's called Discipleship on the Edge, and I brought it up here just so you could look at it. And if you were like super curious about the book of Revelation, you want to read along with us, this is a great book. I mean, you're going to be hearing a lot from it in these sermons, so... I'll discover just how unoriginal so much of my preaching is. Okay. Uh, so this is, this is out of the introduction to the book. It says, but as difficult as some of the symbolism and imagery is, the overarching fundamental message of the document is not hard to discern. The story is told of a group of seminary students and a janitor. The students were, for a season, playing basketball in a nearby high school gym. While they played, the janitor, who graciously allowed the seminarians to use the gym after hours, would borrow one of their Bibles and spend the hour reading it. One day, one of the young men asked the janitor, what have you been reading in the Bible? A revelation, he replied. The seminarian chuckled. <laughs> yeah, right. No, really, the janitor said. Having heard one of his professors say that no one really understands the strange book, the seminarian asked, well, do you understand what you've been reading? Oh, yes, replied the now smiling janitor. Chuckling again, the seminarian asked, almost sarcastically, condescendingly, right? Well then, tell me what it means. The janitor looked to his right and then to his left and he leaned into the seminarian's ear and whispered, it means that Jesus is going to win. That's what the book is about. 
all of this imagery that's so vivid that can be so hard to understand and to unpack, what it is about is that Jesus is going to win. In fact, he's already won. This book is about us. One of the other commentators says this. This book is about us seeing Jesus as he is now. That John, who was likely the beloved apostle, right, one of Jesus' closest followers, who, who reclined at the Last Supper and put his head on Jesus' chest, because they're all sitting on beanbags having this dinner, right? John's like snuggled up to Jesus. And, and this John, who knew Jesus so intimately, he needed a different picture of Jesus in the midst of his waiting and the pain of his waiting. And the picture that he gets from God, the revelation he gets from God, the uncovering that he gets from God is a picture of Jesus as he exists now, this one who is coming, who's on his way. I'm coming. And this Jesus who is coming is bringing God's kingdom. That's why we included Revelation eleven fifteen in our reading this morning. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Our Jesus is even now on the throne, and he is coming. It's a thesis statement for the whole book that Jesus is bringing his kingdom, there's gonna be a day where earth and heaven become one. That our hope ultimately as Christians, you guys have heard me talk about this a bazillion times, is not ultimately that we go to heaven when we die. No, it's that our Jesus is coming back here to bring a new heavens and a new earth where we will live in resurrected bodies. That's our hope. And so we say, Jesus, come quickly. And let's just stop for a moment and pause and just and, and really think about this. Okay, Jesus, who was a man who lived 2,000 years ago in a city called Nazareth, who was homeless and who wandered around teaching about the kingdom of God, who gathered all of these followers who then left him when he died. That guy. The guy about whom everyone in the world has some kind of opinion. A good teacher, an interesting man, right? a charlatan, a liar, a guru, that we all have some idea about who Jesus is. That Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. And then what his followers said about him is that when he died, he rose again. And what that Jesus said before he died is, I'm going to rise again and then I'm going to come again. That Jesus is coming back. And what our text tells us is in verse 7, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. That what John is telling us is that when Jesus comes back, we will all be forced to see Jesus, not as we imagine him to be, not as we have thought him to be, but Jesus as he actually is. And whether or not you believe that makes no difference. You will see him, and you will see him as he is. And that, that what will happen to all of us is that we will be undone. We will say, oh, I have failed to live my life in the reality of Jesus as Lord. And what the scriptures would tell us is that deep inside of every human, there is the knowledge that God is who he says he is. 
And it's a knowledge that we are always trying to skirt and to avoid and push down. And that when Jesus comes back, we're going to see, oh, that thing I have been pushing down, it was true all along. And that for some people, they will be wailing on account of that. Oh, I wasted it. I've chosen to live my life apart from and out from under this God the entire time, and now I'm going to receive the consequences of that. It's a terrifying thing. It makes the book of Revelation a terrifying thing, but it will not be terrifying for everyone. This is what verse 5 says. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's this, this huge picture of who Jesus is. It says, then, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to God his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the most important safety bar for us to keep in mind as we unpack the book of Revelation. That our Jesus who is coming back is our King who loves us. He loves you. And because of his great love for you, he has freed you from your sins by his blood. That he's made us a kingdom, priest to God, priest to his God and Father, to our God and Father. And he would make us priests because what priests do is they are constantly in the presence of God. But Jesus, because of his great love for you, came for you. He shed his blood for you. He set you free from your sins so that you could be in his presence forever. But the book of Revelation, it's, it's, it's God explaining to us uh, the end of this fairy tale that he is aiming all of history to, a fairy tale that says that Jesus is coming to take us to be with him forever, to live happily ever after in a happiness that is more full than you and I could ever imagine, that when he returns, we will say, oh, I have failed to live my life in light of who you are, Jesus, but because I am in you, because I have trusted in you, because you have come for me, I now also know that everything my heart has been yearning for, even that I pushed down, all of that is found and fulfilled in you, and now we get to be together forever. Oh. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. That's our king. That's the ultimate uh, safety bar for us as we read through this, revel this roller coaster of revelation as we uh, live in the midst of, uh, of our waiting and a waiting that can be so painful is to know that our Jesus who is coming is our Jesus who loves us and gave himself for us. And that ultimately his is the victory, but it's a victory that we can look forward to with hope and with joy speaks to us in our waiting. I just finished this book called uh, The Nightingale. It's about two sisters resisting the Nazi occupation of France uh, in their own ways. And there's this moment where the younger sister, Isabel, is guiding downed uh, allied pilots across the Pyrenees. They're escaping from occupied France into Spain so they can be returned to their homes. And as they're crossing these mountains, it's an arduous hike. It's freezing cold. They lack the proper clothes and food. Their feet are full of blisters. They're walking all through the nights. They're right on the edge of death. 
And we get this description from Isabel. She says someone, it says, someone fell in front of her and made a yelping sound. And she rushed forward and found one of the Canadian flyers on his knees, wheezing hard, his mustache frozen. I'm beat, baby doll, he said. Try to smile. He's saying it's over. And Isabel slid down beside him. Beside him. Her backside grew instantly cold. It's Teddy, right? You got me. Look, I'm done for. Just go on ahead. You got a wife, Teddy? A girl back home in Canada? She couldn't see his face, but she heard the way he sucked in his breath at her question. You aren't playing fair, doll. There's no fair in life and death, Teddy. What's her name? Alice. Get on your feet for Alice, Teddy. She felt him shift his weight and get his feet back underneath him. It's knowing that we are loved that allows us to wait, that allows us to bear up under the pain that we experience in our waiting, to keep moving through the pain of our waiting. It's love that allows us to do that, knowing that we are loved that allows us to do that. The book of Revelation, it's this, it's this message that we desperately need. Yes, written to a people at a specific time in a specific place, but also a letter that was written for us. That was for us to understand uh, who God is, what he is doing in the world, to, to throw us off balance, to confuse us just enough to realize, oh, we want our lives to be consumed by the vision of who God is and what he is doing in the world. That we want our lives uh, the, our vision for our lives to be consumed by the God who found us beautiful and who's moved toward us in love. That is the journey uh, that we're going to be going on this fall. So pray with me. Father, uh, so often our lives feel chaotic. Lord, the world around us can feel so chaotic and out of control, Lord, and what you are reminding us even this morning is that none of this is surprising to you or shocking to you, Lord, that you are in control, that you're in control and that you love us, Lord, that you are our king and that you are our king who is coming. Lord, as we sing and as we worship you now, would you draw us deeper into that reality? We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.